people want a lot of the mayor. I want to give you a chance to ask some help from the people of Seattle. What would you ask the people of Seattle to help make your life easier? You know, I I, I guess I would ask people, let's just deal with the, the issue around um, growth and some of the challenges with growth. Um, there are no simple solutions. And uh, The solutions are there, though, if we talk to each other and don't demonize each other. There are ways to make our neighborhoods even greater than they are today if we're willing to talk to each other. Can we have a conversation about this uh, instead of engaging in some of the uh, strident um, mischaracterizations of what people are trying to do uh, that we see in in the blogosphere? Uh, I guess that's what I would ask, is that we would engage each other and not immediately question our our motivations. That's the voice of Seattle Mayor Ed Murray, and the Seattle Growth Podcast is the place for that conversation about Seattle's growth. You'll hear more from my in-depth interview with the Mayor of Seattle on a future podcast episode. As you might have guessed, this is the Seattle Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff Shulman, and today's conversation about Seattle's growth focuses on the affordability of buying a home. You'll hear an in-depth interview with Rob Wasser, a member of the Northwest MLS Board of Directors, as well as owner and designated broker of Prospera Real Estate. You'll also hear from Brad Everett, a mortgage broker at Caliber Home Loans with over 20 years of experience. Previously on the Seattle Growth Podcast, we explored why the tech scene is thriving and what challenges growth creates for business leaders. You heard from City Council Member Rob Johnson. That equated last year to an average of nine new jobs per hour and seven new people per hour that we were creating in 2015. You heard from Parker Ferguson, founding partner at Flint Ferguson Commercial Real Estate Services. We used to have boom times and a company uh, would come in and they might hire 20 people or 40 people or 50 people and now Facebook rolls into town and they're hiring 3,000 people. Well, so there's certainly the, the scale is much larger. You heard from Chris DeVore, managing director at Techstars, founding partner at the venture capital firm Founders Co-op, and chair of Seattle's Economic Development Commission. And we've had growth in Seattle largely because of Bill Gates and Paul Allen and Jeff Bezos and great entrepreneurs choosing to build companies here that were magnetic to talent. So instead, we weren't just providing jobs for locals. We were drawing leadership and talent in from around the world that said Seattle's an exciting place to be. You heard from Sunil Gowda, founder of local startup Garmentary. We are headquartered in Seattle. Uh, we love Seattle. It's, it's a great place to be an entrepreneur. Like, Lots and lots of talented engineers and um, just just the ecosystem, investors, mentors, other startups. I think it's a, it's a perfect balance. And you heard from Vinayak Hegde, chief marketing officer of Groupon, a Chicago-based company that has started a Seattle office and grown it to over 300 employees. Right, so people come here and spend a few days working and then, hmm, I'm going to move here. So I have people who moved from Dublin, people who moved from Germany, from Chile from Spain, and it's fascinating. As we transition into today's episode, the influx of workers in the tech sector is affecting perceptions of home ownership. Some people think as Kathy Kelly does. The prospect of buying is becoming more and more elusive, where before it seemed real possible, definitely. And others, such as Leslie Basil, have achieved home ownership by moving further from their work. You know, I've had to move to, and not like this is horrible. I moved to Lake City. I feel like that's the one 
like the last sort of semi-affordable place in Seattle. And it's the upper, it's like the northeastern corner, very northeastern corner. Even homeowners such as Lauren West share concerns about the cost of homeownership. I'm a homeowner, and so I get the fruits of it. Like my kids, I have no idea how they're going to, you know, how they're going to become homeowners and, and sort of do as well, uh, you know, comfortably in life than, than me. Concerns such as this seemingly have merit, as younger residents like Dan Morgan have all but given up on their dream of homeownership. It, it's become really hard to find an affordable place to live, and uh, my kind of goal of being able to own a house in Seattle has kind of drifted away as, as it's gotten increasingly expensive, which just makes me a little sad because I've always kind of hoped I'd be able to buy a house someday in the city, but um, it's, uh, it's pretty far out of reach at the moment. <laughs> to get a sense of just how elusive homeownership is becoming, I sat down for an extended interview with Rob Wasser. I'm here with Rob Wasser, owner and designated broker at Prospero Real Estate, and he is also on the Northwest MLS Board of Directors. Rob, thank you for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I've been married for a great wife. I'm the luckiest guy. I've been married. That sounds horrible, I'm sure, over the air, but I've, I've, I love my wife. I've been married since uh, 2009. I, I hope. <laughs> and uh, we just had our, our first daughter a year and a half ago, our only our only child, a daughter, a year and a half ago. And um, all my family lives here uh, in the Sandpoint area, and, and then my in-laws are over in Newcastle area. So this is my home. Um, and then uh, uh, went out to, to UW in the business school, entrepreneurship, and that naturally led to, to opening my own brokerage, which came on the heels of um, investing in my first property when I was, was I 19, I think at the time and in college. And that's how far things had changed. Somebody gave me a zero down loan when I was 19 with like $18,000 of, uh, running a college painting business. Um, but, uh, I, I suppose career wise, one of the bigger things that shaped me was I can remember, uh, my dad had a good job and, uh, president of, um, a big, big company in one of their local branches and worked hard for the company for a lot of years. And, um, the way I've always heard it, basically politics kind of got in the way of some things at the same time, his health was starting to turn and long story short, whatever it was, I remember him sitting me down, sitting all of us down. And when I was in middle school and basically saying, Hey, you know, they've asked me to move to Modesto and, you know, I'm not going to do that. And, and I remember thinking at the time, well, at least in hindsight, I, I know that I made the decision somewhere that I didn't want somebody else to, to control um, my own destiny. So that's how I ended up going the entrepreneurial route and started my own business. And um, uh, the other thing about my dad was he always, always tried to do the right thing. And I think that's translated into the job that I do for clients in terms of saying, hey, here's everything I know, here's what I can tell you. You're gonna make your own decisions, but I'm gonna try to do the best I can for you to be able to make a choice that you feel good about. So that's a long-winded story of me. And now tell me a little bit about Prospera. Oh, well, I started Prospera in 2007. Um, got into call or got into real estate when I was in college um, back in 2004. 
and uh, was UW Business School Entrepreneurship Program. So it, it was the next step. And uh, been a work in progress ever since and just trying to do a good job for clients. And at the end of the day, our job is to provide good information and good insight. Homes sell themselves. So that's what we try to do. Just be a good source of knowledge. And so you said you loved providing your clients with information. Tell me about your love of data. <laughs> well, my love of data started, and maybe it's not as as, as much as, you know, well, I keep spreadsheets, so yeah, I guess I like data. I, I work with people, I have clients from Google, and they get all excited when I pull out a spreadsheet. <laughs> um, but uh, it started when, when I opened the brokerage, and the market was not doing well. 2007 was when things started to, to take a nosedive. Um, and I wanted to know what was going on. And so I started tracking active sales, pending sales, closed sales, and um, just trying to get a feel for why things are going a certain way. And and, and on top of the data, what's going on with job market, just kind of local news, interest rates, and putting all that together to, to have a better understanding of what's going on and, and why. So when people now ask me, um, where do you see prices going? I could say, well, here's here's what I'm looking at in terms of inventory, supply. I don't have a crystal ball, and and I don't think anybody could firmly tell you what's going to happen after a year. There's so many variables, but I can look at, well, here's what I see for at least the short term. Here's what I know about the longer term, um, and then you can plan accordingly. And um, it's been very valuable. We ended up uh, buying... Um, right at about the best time 2012 because I saw what was happening with supply coming down and I knew that prices were going to come up and I'd like to think I could try to be right as much as I can but that's a good example of where data uh, really did help out uh, and for myself individually and then that translates on into to clients as well. So if you wanted just a single family house with a, a small yard just to get started as you're launching your family how much would that cost in, in various places? In Seattle. Uh, so I, I tried to break this out in terms of just areas that kind of make sense. West Seattle as a whole, Ballard as a whole, um, looking over at like the Sandpoint, Wedgwood, uh, Wedgwood, Bryant, Ravenna area. I completely ruled out Laurelhurst because there aren't starter homes in Laurelhurst. Um, but so uh, just kind of work through the list and answer that question. In West Seattle, oh, and I should back up. Um, the, the numbers I'll, I'll quote are... They're not the cheapest home on the market. They, uh, and I, I'll use the example of your first car. Your first car is maybe not always going to be a jalopy that you picked up for $200. It might be a 1997 Toyota Camry or something like that. And so I try to translate that into these figures. So starting with West Seattle, uh, you can find homes for four to 450 uh, that are going to be an okay home. And there isn't going to be... Uh, anything uh, serious wrong with them, you can get a conventional loan on them. If a home has a really uh, bad condition, uh, then uh, you might not be able to get a, get a conventional loan. So yeah, you could probably get a home there in the low to mid 300s, but it might not be exactly the starter home that most people would be envisioning. So moving on uh, with that same concept, Ballard. Uh, Ballard can range from 475 to 600, and this is all based off of uh, homes that have sold in the last 45 days, um, and trying to exclude also like a 700 square foot home that maybe isn't the, the best starter home for everybody. Um, the Maple Leaf, Northgate area, 
400 to 450. I have a listing right now, Maple Leaf at 450. That uh, would I would consider a really good starter home, and I think the price is going to end up getting pushed up on that one. So, 450 probably on the low side there. Capitol Hill, Madrona, Leshy, Madison area. Some of those are aren't starter homes because they're so expensive, but um, you're looking probably around 600 plus. The central area, um, and even there, prices have really come up. Central area would be around five to 550k. Beacon Hill, 475 to 550k. Uh, Rainier Beach, Columbia City, uh, 350 to 400k. And as you move further away from the job centers, things tend to go down a little bit in price, and that's a good example with Rainier Beach. Uh, Sandpoint, Wedgwood, Bryant, Ravenna, that's going to be a little bit closer to 600k. Queen Anne is spendy. That's 700k plus. Um, and then Green Lake, Fremont, Wallingford, Finney Ridge area, six to 650. So you said in Queen Anne, a starter home is roughly 700,000. Uh, can you maybe tell me about a house that you found that somebody might be able to get for less than 700,000, what that looks like? Yeah. So um, there's one actively listed home at 575,000. Um, that's a 930 square foot home. Not up to date, uh, but by all means, I suppose this could be a, a good starter home. It's listed only as a one bed, though, so um, it's probably more for uh, a single person um, or a young married couple who doesn't plan to have kids. So I don't know if it necessarily starts into the starter home category, but it's an example of a home that you could get on, sadly, 575 is the more affordable side of Queen Anne. Now, you gave me some prices of what what the market looks like now can you tell me a little bit about the the trajectory and and how it's been getting a, a single family home yeah and that data is a little harder to come by because starter home is more of a um a gray relative term depends on who you're asking so the best that i can do for you there is to start by looking at the median selling price and then just kind of working down from there knowing that well a starter home should be on the south side of whatever the median is. So looking at Seattle, the median selling price of single family homes, excluding condos, but that would include townhomes, uh, in February was 625,000. And it skyrocketed, um, and, and, there's, and I can explain why. Buyers didn't take the holidays off like a lot of sellers did. And uh, December into January, December in particular, was the lowest inventory that I've tracked since, um, since the recession. And that was down to a half a month. Uh, and so December uh, and basically January 1st with the amount of uh, active listings, the, those homes going under contract then are the homes that are then closing in February. So February's median selling price jumped to 625 in Seattle from 585 in January. And then looking back, going back to let's say January 2015, it was at 500,000. Going back to January 2014, it was at 435. So things have changed dramatically and quickly. Um, in just a matter of time and it all happened see the low point ended up being right in late 2011 into 2012 uh, when the median selling price single-family homes in seattle got to 344 i have here one topic of discussion that i've heard is as affordability becomes an issue here in seattle is to open up more single-family 
zoned residential areas, open them up to more flexible housing situations. And one thing we, since we haven't seen that happen yet, what we have seen is houses get converted to townhomes. Do you mind speaking a little bit as to the effect of these more flexible housing arrangements? Yeah, well, one of the most popular ways right now is to to put up townhomes. Um, builders are grabbing properties that are zoned specifically in a manner that would allow to take what is usually a single-family house, usually dilapidated, uh, tear it down and be able to put up multiple units. And uh, looking at the data for closed sales of residential units, excluding condos, in June in Seattle, 47.9% were townhomes. And then as that translates to affordability, uh, new construction townhomes, the median selling price in June was 642500 which compared to new construction single-family homes, excluding townhomes, uh, was uh, the median selling price was 749000 basically 750000 So they are more affordable options. Um, so when you're talking about adding density, townhomes are accomplishing that and they are more affordable but in the big scheme of things uh, buyers are paying a real premium right now for brand new and part of that goes back to uh, that there was a lack of inventory and a lack of new construction uh, while builders were kind of catching up to the recovery. Do you have any uh, micro level examples of a house that was sold and then turned into townhomes? Uh, A couple examples uh, that that uh, came to mind around neighborhoods uh, where I live. Um, There's a home that was torn down, bought for $220,000 in December of uh, 2012, eventually developed just recently here, um, across from a major grocery center on an arterial, and not exactly the place that I would think would fetch the highest price, uh, but it's the type of home that buyers are uh, really going stir crazy for um, it, it's a uh, four-star built green uh, has things like a uh, car charging station in the garage uh, basically looks like a pottery barn catalog rooftop deck 1900 square feet and that ended up uh, two of those uh, that are on the MLS uh, were listed at 895,000 and went pending within two and three days which tells me they're at near or more likely above that price Uh, we won't know until they close any other examples there was one in ravenna that came to mind uh that lot sold uh, not lot it was a house uh, again torn down sold in march of 2014 for 475,000. two townhomes were put up in its place Uh, one sold recently at 735,000. the other one is currently pending at almost 740,000 list price those are 1,460 square feet, three bed, two and a quarter bath, also built green, radiant heat, rooftop deck. Um, so again, a lot of the stuff that buyers and especially some of the younger buyers and, and I think a lot of the tech workers uh, really appreciate. And that ended up being uh, 735, a little bit higher than what the median selling price is going for for townhomes. Uh, so those don't quite end up being affordable, uh, but they are good examples of adding density. And in the bigger scheme of things, townhomes do um, end up being on the more affordable side in general. Have you seen any other forms of subdivision that has led to more flexible use of land? Yeah. So a good example of that is a property basically just kitty corner from my office here in Madrona on 34th. Um, 
there was a single family house there and it would have been zoned. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head, but it would have been zoned uh, non-conforming or something. Cause this entire street is basically businesses. And, um, that property from the, uh, the property records I can find sold in March of 2015 for 825,000. Um, and I, and I'm guessing that was a sale particularly, for the land, um, so maybe not indicative of what the house itself would have been worth if it was two blocks away in a residential street, um, but sold for 825 according to property records. And what they did with that one is they left the existing house, which was kind of towards the back of the property and not a very big property for that matter, but they left the house there. And on the front, what gosh, only felt like 20 feet or so, they managed to uh, erect two uh live work townhouse style live work places so the bottom floor would be um one's already been converted into uh like an exercise studio and it will have stairs that go up to the living area and um i believe those sold for 750 to 800 i i don't have that data in front of me but i know a similar scenario across the street live work units that were also just completed sold right around the 800 mark um but a new place that was built, two new, you know, more density, and they did not sell cheap. So you're the beneficiary in the, of this in the sense that you're you live in a townhome uh, that was placed where an older structure was taken down. Yeah, yeah, I am. But <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm living and breathing it. Yes, uh, and so you're happy for yourself. But as you're looking at these numbers, your your summary judgment is. What what's the net effect of this? Well, and when I bought, it was at a different time, so it it was affordable for me to buy a townhouse in this neighborhood. My summary judgment is: yes, you're getting more things on the market. Uh, for like the example down there at Union and MLK, that was one house that is becoming three townhouses, and next door looks like it'll be four. Um, so you're getting more. Um, but I guess in summary, these are going to be in places that are closer to shopping, closer to, um, or, or probably on arterials. If you run all the way down MLK, for example, you'll see them just dotted along there. Out in Queen Anne, I think it's 10th Avenue, running north and south. There's a bunch of ones right on that street that are going up. So ultimately, more density, but with new construction having a real premium right now, not necessarily on the really affordable side. How many years have you been in Seattle? Uh, I've been in Seattle since I came out. Uh, I grew up in Bellevue and been in Seattle since I came out to UW in 2001. And and how do you feel about the changes that, that you've seen in these 15 years or so? Oh, boy, that's a big question. Um, in specific to real estate or Seattle? I, I mean, I could go a lot of different ways with that. Um, but I, I don't even know how to answer that. Uh, Things, uh, what I've seen a lot lately that is grabbing me more so, um, at least in the news, is the shift towards, um, a lot of talk about it lately, affordable housing and density. And it just seems like uh, whether it's a knee-jerk result or whether it's a planned out result, uh, result, it's a result of the fact that, in my opinion, our job market is just killing it. Housing hasn't kept up, and it translates into um, what buyers are dealing with now, and we work with a lot of buyers, and it's difficult because there just isn't enough inventory to keep up with the demand. And so, yeah, it has changed a lot, and if you go back to 
I'll give you a data point. As of uh, a look at February, February 2016, uh, there were 408 closed sales of single-family houses. And as of what would have been March 1st, there would have only been 452 listed actively for sale and available. And if I go back to February 2012, um, at that point in time, there was only 359 sales, less people buying, and there was 1,200 active listings. Uh, so things have changed dramatically, <laughs> like flip-flopped. And, and we joke a little bit about it, uh, in, or I guess real estate agents do, just kind of in passing when I talk with them that, you know, I haven't seen a normal market per se. We always read about how uh, analysts suggest a four to six month supply of homes is a neutral market and supply being the amount of time it would take to clear out the existing inventory based on the current pace of sales. Um, so four to six months being a neutral market favoring neither buyer or seller. Well, uh, from my data, we did have a neutral market once for you know a handful of months as it was shifting from one end to the other. So yeah, it's just, I guess what's going on and we do the best we can to deal with it. And, and, and there are unknowns. And, and if you look at Longer term, we can we can uh, uh, iron out some of those kinks and ups and downs, um, and that's why when I talk with clients, I always say, okay, yeah, maybe you need to move in five years. Let's plan for that, but let's also keep an eye on that. There's a p potential for it being a long-term investment for you that you can hold on to, um, and knowing that things could go up and down. If in five years you need to move, we need to know if you can rent it if you can't sell it for what you pay for it today. If the market turns around, so yeah. I, long answer. I, I, don't, I think I got an answer in there somewhere for you. Rob, thank you so much for your time. Really <laughs> yeah. appreciate your insight and perspective. perspective. Thank you very awesome. much. My thank pleasure. You. To translate these home prices into real numbers, I sat down with Brad Everett, who gave a sense of what kind of salaries and savings are required to afford these starter homes in Seattle. I am here with Brad Everett from Caliber Home Loans. Brad, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Okay. I am a, uh, I'm a native of the Seattle area. Graduated from University of Washington back in 91 uh, with a finance major. Uh, lived with my wife and son in Ravenna, about a mile away from campus. And what about professionally? Tell me a little bit about yourself professionally. Yeah, started, uh, gosh, I fell, into, I fell into the mortgage business by complete accident. I uh, was temping, I was trying to find a job at Nike. They had a freeze back in 94. I guess it's one of uh, the recessions we've had in the last couple of decades and uh, ended up working for a mortgage company making copies. And they found out I had a finance degree and kind of worked my way up uh, on the operation side. And then I realized on the sales side, you had more, more opportunity to, to help people directly and, and make a good living. How many years have you been in the business? Yeah, so I've been in the... Oh, God, I hate saying that, Jeff. So <laughs> okay, I, I, no, sorry. No, let's let's call been? it 21. Let's call it... I've been in the mortgage business 21 years. Yes. And in those 21 years, uh, have you seen lending standards change in various eras of time there? Oh, my God. A, a ton. You know, uh, it was it was rough when I first started out, right? It was, uh, it was a tough lending environment. The economy wasn't great. Uh, and certainly over the next 10 years as the economy was growing and the government focused on getting people into homes, uh, you know, by 2004, 2005, we we're given mortgages to God, anybody who was walking around and wanted one. Uh, and then obviously we know what happened, you know, 708, 
complete meltdown. Uh, and now we're at a level where, yeah, we want to give people mortgages, but certainly we make it a, a lot more, a lot more difficult. There's a lot more, uh, paperwork to get through and things to verify. Comparing right now relative to that recession that, that we were in, what are some noticeable differences in terms of the lending standards that you've observed? So really super relaxed 10 years ago. Okay. Everybody. And then through this meltdown, when everybody's, you know, banks have lost money and they've been burned and they're getting homes back, everything's been tightened up, really. So the last five years has been, you know, hey, we verify, hey, we verify income, we check credit, we check deposits, we, you know, assets, you know, where are they coming from? And has that eased in the last five years? Like this year, is it, has that, have the restrictions in the recession eased? I don't think it's, honestly, I don't think it's eased that much over the last four or five years. Um, I think we're all used to what we do. So we're hopefully better at just the process, but we're, it's still, it's, it's a thorough process when you're going to come get a mortgage. So you have to be prepared and, um, you know, we'll guide people through it. But like I said, we're going to verify income. We're going to verify assets. You know, if there's large deposits showing up in your bank account that aren't from your pay stub, we need to source where they came from. Uh, so yeah, lenders ask a lot more questions than, you know, 10 years ago when, gosh, we'd, we'd pull credit and maybe verify income. And in terms of the down payments that are necessary at this stage in time, how have that, how has that changed? Yeah. Down payments have, um, requirements have lessened over the last couple of years. So there's 3% down programs out there. Um, and then there's depending on income, you know, down payment assistant programs available to help, you know, even with that 3% down. Um, so I, I would say definitely lenders have started down the path of lower down payments. We don't see the zero down, you know, the 80, 20 loans that we saw 10 years ago. Um, but certainly people don't need, you know, 20% down to buy a home. And honestly, most people in Seattle, especially first time home buyers don't, don't have 20%. What would it take for someone to get a mortgage on a home that's say $500,000 here in Seattle? So 500,000, you can put as little as, as 3% down, right? So you can need, uh, you know, 15,000 if it's a $500,000 home. Uh, the neat thing is now, um, lenders have, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, um, FHA all allow the down payment to be a hundred percent gift as long as it's coming from a relative. So from that standpoint, really pretty flexible. Um, as far as when we're analyzing income, um, and debts, a lot of it depends on, you know, how much monthly debt does the buyer have? So we're looking at monthly payments as far as student loans, car payments, and minimum payments on credit cards. So the general rule of thumb is we'll allow 43% of someone's gross monthly income go towards all of their debt. So we have to analyze how much is going to debt and then subtract that out and that's what's left for a mortgage. So someone with lots of student loans, couple car payments, versus someone who doesn't have any of that, they make the same income, but the amount of debt will affect how much each of those groups qualifies. 
do some quick math for yes, us. Yes, I knew that was kind of, yeah, how can we do that? <laughs> uh, so let's say in a perfect world, somebody has no debt and they want to buy a $500,000 home. What are some options in terms of the down payment and the monthly payment? And then what are some of the requirements that you would expect? Right, right. So on the, on the math front, you know, once again, getting back to down payment, if we look at it and say, 500,000 and this person's gonna put minimum down. So three to three and a half percent down. Um, once we, you know, we say, okay, you're gonna be borrowing, you know, 485,000 right in that neighborhood. When we factor in, you know, an interest rate of three and three quarters, let's say, principal and interest, taxes, homeowners insurance and mortgage insurance, probably gonna total right around $3,000 a month. So. If someone doesn't have any debt, they could qualify um, for that scenario as little as seven thousand a month gross income, or about eighty-four thousand a year. Someone with maybe more average debt is going to need nine thousand a month, or one hundred eight thousand to qualify for that scenario. Is there a penalty to put down the three percent for the down payment relative to the traditional twenty percent rule? Yeah, the only I mean, the only penalty really is that they're going to have to pay mortgage insurance. Um, so if you're putting twenty percent down, you can avoid the mortgage insurance. So um, with less than ten, uh, excuse me, with less than twenty percent down, um, a buyer is going to have to deal with mortgage insurance in some, on some level, uh, and the mortgage insurance gets more expensive um, the less you put down, and it goes in increments of five percent. So 20% down, no mortgage insurance, 15% down, a little bit more, 10%, it increases 5% and so on. And now let's also kind of run some math for the listeners about a $700,000 home, which is roughly a starter home in Queen Anne. Yeah, who who gosh, could buy a crazy. starter home in Queen Anne? <laughs> it is crazy. So once we get to that, that purchase price, we now need at least 10% down. So significant... Um, more down payment um, and right away at that level we're most likely falling into a jumbo loan category so a jumbo loan is anything above $540,500 the rules change quite a bit once you get above that so like I said first of all they got to put at least 10% down in almost all cases 5% or half the down payment but at least 5% of the purchase price must come from their own funds so that it can't all be a gift and then as far as payment goes you know let's assume 10 percent down factoring in principal interest taxes insurance mortgage insurance we're going to be looking at a payment of about thirty nine hundred dollars um you know if, if someone doesn't have any debt can probably qualify around hundred ten thousand a year if they have average debt, they're going to need closer to one hundred forty-five, hundred fifty thousand. And then assets, they could clear out their entire bank account and for that down payment, and yeah. that'll be fine. That's a, gr I mean, great question. So yeah, and so many different things there. So uh, once again, kind of depending on credit and and where they stand with everything else. Really, most lenders want to see roughly six months of the mortgage payment left over what we call reserves. So if we look at that payment, which is $3,900 a month, 
a lender's going to want to see roughly 24,000 left over in assets. Now we do get to count retirement. So if they depleted their savings and checking to buy the house, but they have enough money in retirement, then they're still going to qualify for that situation. Anything else you could say to give color to what it takes to get a $700,000 house in Seattle? You got to act fast. You got to, I mean, you have to be prepared, certainly. Um, It's, and we've heard, right? And it's, it's true. I mean, nearly every offer, you know, when a house goes up, there's, there's five, six, 10, you know, other people ready to, ready to buy. So, um, I would say the industry now is, you know, there's enough variables. It's hard to, to kind of put a, a sheet over everybody's situation. Um, kind of general rules, I think that fit for everybody is to say, okay, a third of your gross monthly income is usually a spot where you say, okay, that's where I can be kind of comfortably aggressive or aggressively comfortable. I don't know which way that goes. You know, make sure bills are paid on time, keep credit usage low, try to save money, don't have a lot of uh, transfers from, you know, different accounts that may be difficult you know, difficult to source. Um, and then it's just a matter of, of planning and getting with a lender ahead of time, right. And getting all the numbers straight before you start looking at, you know, $700,000 home. And can you put that into more specifics as to what somebody has to do now before they're ready to put an offer on a home uh, from the end of qualifying for a mortgage? Yeah, it's still, I mean, it's still pre-approval, but it's, it's a complete application, right? So we're, we're going to go in and verify the last two, last two years of your life, you know, as far as where you've lived, where you've worked, you know, we're collecting, we're collecting a month of pay stubs. We're collecting two years of W-2s. We're collecting two years of tax returns. We're collecting two months of bank statements, you know, two months of stock statements, you know, all your assets, retirement, et cetera. It's really a matter of, of being thorough. So when we get pre-approved, we fill out the application, we collect all the documentation, um, we're pulling credit, and we're analyzing everything ahead of time. So we know, okay, are there any challenges, right? Deal them before anyone's out there falling in love with a home, right? Get, get that taken care of. Uh, and then we can also figure out from a budget standpoint, gosh, how far do you feel or how, how far um, can you stretch and still feel comfortable? Um, in Seattle right now, it's rough, but I think most people, their comfort zone and what they like in a home, you know, comfort zone as far as a payment goes, and then when they go look at a home they wanna buy, there's a, there's a big disconnect. So it's trying to figure out ahead of time, okay, gosh, how much can we really afford, regardless of what the lender says, how much can we afford to pay for our mortgage? And then translating that into a purchase price, and then they can go out there and feel comfortable. And are you seeing with these rising home prices, failures to, for the appraisal to come through at the price that people promise? You know, surprisingly, we, we haven't seen it a lot. We've seen, we've seen it happen a couple times. The reality is there's a lot of cash offers out there that are therefore helping support the higher prices. In other words, on these cash offers, an appraisal never had to happen. They just came in, they bid the house up and said, we're gonna pay 
X amount for this. And as soon as it closes, it becomes a viable comparable for future purchases. The all cash offers that are occurring, are people getting mortgages for those? Or is that something that they're, they're doing or are they just actually have the cash? Yeah, we've had a couple people who, to be competitive, they're tired of losing out, that they will go out, you know, they will somewhat empty, right, their assets to buy house cash, close as quickly as they can, uh, and then come back and get a mortgage and replenish their assets. But it does seem like, sadly, uh, there's a lot of those, you know, all cash offers that they, they just have a lot of cash. Okay, so there's not something that people who are getting tired of losing to all cash offers, anything that they could do with a mortgage broker ahead of time. I think, you know what, the farther along they are in the process, absolutely helps. So for us, you know, what we're doing, not only getting pre-approved, I probably should have mentioned it earlier. So once you're pre-approved and you have everything set up, we're submitting that file to underwriting, right? Just, just like we had a property and everything goes to the underwriter and gets the stamp of approval ahead of time. So it's definitely a more thorough process when it comes to being pre-approved. Really, it's, it's uh, your, your loan officer checking everything over, right? You actually submit the loan electronically to the lender, and then you have the underwriter reviewing everything ahead of time. So we've removed almost all doubt um, from the process other than really when you talk about the property, right? Is the property in good shape, and is it worth what the buyers right. ultimately paying for it. And have you seen any trends here in Seattle in the last five years from your end? Other than just prices going up <laughs> dramatically. Um, it's, yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy to me that six years ago, you know, and just where prices were and, oh, it'll never, it'll never get that insane again. Prices will never be that high again. And, and prices are that high right now. Uh, a mini trend I've seen is we, we have a lot of clients from the Bay Area who are thrilled to be moving up to Seattle where home prices are so affordable. Uh, and that's interesting to see. And we've had a couple clients who it's cheaper for them to buy in Seattle and commute than it is to buy in San Francisco. So I think the thing that scares me a little bit is it seems like as hot as the market's been, it uh, seems like there's still room for prices to go up even more from here. Any other trends you've observed? I think we've seen, uh, I don't know if it's, you know, with some of our clients, I don't, I don't want to say it's an official trend, uh, but I have seen where younger people who are unmarried, it, it's super, I mean, when we go over these numbers, you can see it's, it's super hard for a, a single person to afford a home. Um, so for the, for those out there, we've, we started to see where they, they band together and maybe we have just, we have friends who are going to buy a house together, uh, as opposed to a, you know, married couple. So they'll just say, gosh, we got to get a home. We're tired of running and they'll go in with a, another friend or two, uh, and buy a house together. We all read about the macro things going on in the world, but we don't always get to hear from the people living it what they're observing and what they're witnessing or seeing that may not be official, but just are these, they're leaving an impression. Yeah. Uh, so I just ask if there's anything like that in your life. Uh, I think it's, I'm, I'm probably pretty, pretty boring. I mean, it's just the, uh, you know, how do people, you know, the, the prices, you know, how do they compete? 
Um, you know, so people are getting more and more aggressive as far as what they're willing to do when they get into an offer situation. Um, so certainly over the last couple months, you know, how do you compete with an all cash offer? Right. So when you go in there, you say, well, gosh, I'm pre-approved. Okay, great. You're pre-approved. You know what? I'm going to waive my financing. Uh, we're going to waive our inspection contingency. So really you have buyers who need a mortgage going into the process and waiving all their protections in hopes of beating out everyone else. Um, the last question I will ask, uh, do you have any concluding thoughts on the changes that you've seen in the Seattle real estate market? Yeah, you know, I, th I think when we look at, you know, nationally versus Seattle, I feel super blessed and grateful to, to live in Seattle. Uh, I know this isn't the story everywhere in the country. You know, Seattle with our geography, uh, obviously just with the natural beauty, people want to come here for various reasons. You know, we have a strong economy. So it's it's been an awesome time to be, you know, in a position to help people buy homes. And it it feels like, you know, it's going to be great to be a homeowner in Seattle for the years to come. Once again, because people are, people are coming here and they want to live here. So I, I know it's challenging for people. Um, you know, homeowners out there would be buyers. You know, main advice is just, you know, be prepared. Get your, get your info, get your data, plan, and you can make it happen. And it's well, it's well worth it. Brad, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate your perspective. Okay, cool. You've now heard from two experts about what it takes to buy a home in Seattle. How do you feel about buying a home? Share your thoughts using hashtag Seattle Home Buying. Next week, we transition from a focus on home ownership to the homeless. You will hear from Ty Sanders, who lives on the streets of Seattle. The one reason I came up here, you know, they said they're eating, so I brought my fork. You will hear from Stu Tanquist, who lives in Tent City 7. We have to very seriously look at what's causing the problems with homelessness instead of just, you know, trying, trying to micromanage, uh, you know, what we have. It's, it's getting worse. It's going to continue to get worse. And you'll hear from Charlotte Wheelock, who experienced homelessness with her two children. It very quickly became what was going to happen in the next 24 hours. There wasn't enough room in my head for a week or a month or six months down the road. It was, what are we having for breakfast? What are we going to do during the day? How much gas am I going to be able to use today? Where are we sleeping tonight? And then what are we having for breakfast? Next week's episode will also feature Marty Hartman. Marty is the executive director of Mary's Place, which recently received a million-dollar donation from Amazon. We can end this if we work together. It's not one nonprofit. It's not won't be one city, one county, or one corporation that will do it. But we will do it because we come together to be in relationship with each other and help our neighbors in need. I look forward to sharing these stories with you next week. In the meantime, please rate this podcast in iTunes. Subscribe if you haven't already. And visit www.seattlegrowthpodcast.com for more updates.